Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAP's Board of View podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young. And Amanda Redfern. So today we decided to continue our oral boards review and talk about a common topic and its differential for those of you who are prepping for the oral boards. Uh, this time we're going to talk about pediatric esotropia. So just to remind people, these kind of oral abu- oral board review episodes are not intended to be a like thorough first time hearing about it review of the content. You'll see we're going to go through it pretty quickly. But this is the kind of speed that you you want to think about things when you're reviewing for oral boards. And this can also be helpful for the clinic, more junior residents. Like th- this is like the differential list you should think about when you see a new esotropia patient, the things you don't want to miss on your history and physical, et cetera. So without further ado, again, this topic here is say you, they show you a picture of like a one-year-old and they obviously have a large angle esotropia. Uh, Amanda, what are the kind of the more the most common things that would be on your differential? So the most common are going to be infantile esotropia and accommodative esotropia. And infantile esotropia, I mean, it's kind of like what it sounds. It's been there since the beginning. And let me remind you, though, in the beginning from like zero to three months, kids eyes do weird crap. So we're talking about past that stage um, of the first three months where their eyes are actually starting to, you know, be more consistent and not just darting around everywhere. Um, But if their eyes are crossing past three months and before six months, that is what we consider an infantile esotropia. Also called congenital esotropia, you know, depending on how your textbook phrases it. So, and um, what's an accommodative esotropia? Like, how is that different? So an accommodative esotropia is associated with increased convergence when they are trying to accommodate. And this is typically happening in our kids with hyperopia. Okay, so those are the most common things. Definitely you want to remember to talk about those. You get asked that on your oral boards. But if you listen to our intro to oral boards episode, you'll know that you have to get the do not miss diagnosis too. So the other, other three things to remember for pediatric esotropia include sensory esotropia, a sixth nerve palsy, or Duane's retraction syndrome. So I think one of the biggest ones here is sensory esotropia, because remember in an adult, if you have something that's, you know, like a, a white cataract, then they can get a sensory exotropia where their eye just kind of trips out. But in a child, for whatever reason, the eye can drift in. So that'll be really important when you're talking about your history and physical to make sure you're not missing something like that because patching an eye is not going to fix uh, a sensory esotropia or doing surgery will definitely not fix a sensory esotropia. Amanda, you're a neuro-ophthalmologist. Do you see six nerve palsies in children? I, I just don't, I don't even see six nerve palsies. It's on my do not see, no, just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Let's no, see, uh, one through five, but nothing else. <laughs> Six nerve palsies certainly can present in anyone at any age. Of course, if I see a six nerve palsy, one of the first things I'm thinking about or worrying about is, do you have elevated intracranial pressure from a mass or something else? Um, and certainly in a child who can't describe any other symptoms, you should have a high index of suspicion for something scary like that and be doing the full dilated exam to look for other signs like papilledema. Yeah. And then kind of the last thing, I mean, this isn't quite as dangerous to miss as a six nerve palsy or sensory esotropia, but Dwayne's retraction syndrome is kind of the last, you know, more like 
zebra-ish kind of thing to remember if you see a patient with esotropia. We won't go into full details of this. It's again, definitely going to be worthy of its own episode that will come at some point probably later this year. But to remind you, it's when basically when, you know, there's there's three different types. So it's basically when one tries to abduct, then their adductor triggers at the same time, causing the eye to retract or kind of pull into the to the orbit. So they when so they'll have restriction in a certain gaze, depending on the type of Dwayne's, but they'll also get retraction in the eye, which will look like the eyelids narrowing. So that's something to definitely look for. And just a reminder, this is not the complete list of all causes of esotropia across the population. You know, we didn't talk about consecutive esotropia after surgery or thyroid eye disease or divergence insufficiency, etc. But we felt like this was a pretty reasonable list for what we feel was likely to be a common case, such as, an, you know, a young child with esotropia to try to remember. Amanda, can you tell us based on this differential, what are some things you want to highlight that you're going to look for in your history and physical? Exam. So, obviously, you're going to check their ocular motility, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in order to have just an esotropia and not, let's say, like a six-nerve palsy, that's going to be very differentiating. Can they move their eye in all directions, especially laterally? Sometimes you're going to have to do this by ductions, not just by versions, because they may not, um, they may not look all the way laterally if you're doing it by versions. So you want to cover one eye and just make sure that each eye individually can bury the sclera if you're having difficulty doing that with just regular um, motility testing. And then, of course, you want to assess vision. One of the things we talked about earlier was accommodative esotropia. So looking at any refractive error and seeing how correcting that affects the uh, degree of the deviation you also want to do a full exam looking for any other causes of this. So we talked about sensory esotropia, um, making sure that they don't have like a cataract or retinoblastoma and also looking for papilledema. I did forget to mention that once they're dilated, you I mentioned that you should be doing um, a refraction and checking their vision, but cycloplegic refraction is um, important in these kids. Yeah, to make sure that they're not accommodating through and, you know, you can get the full sense of their, their hyperopia if they have it. Uh, the, the one thing, too, that you need to look for that's not really mentioned in the differential is when you're checking for vision, you're also looking to see if they have amblyopia. Because if they already have amblyopia at that stage, then you also need to separately treat the amblyopia. So make sure you do an age-appropriate vision test, you know, whether it's preferential looking or, you know, Lea symbols, whatever it would be for, for that age group. Um, to, to try to check it individually in both eyes if you can. Because if they don't have amblyopia yet, in theory, you don't necessarily need to treat it by patching. But uh, yeah, that brings us to treatment. So, you know, the, obviously treating, you know, strabismus, uh, PH strabismus is like worthy of a whole fellowship to learn how to do. We're just going to give the highlights here for, um, to, for, for like oral board view purposes. So, Assuming that the diagnosis ends up being congenital esotropia, then basically, if they have amblyopia, then start patching treatment. If they have, if it's actually accommodative or there's an accommodative component, then give them their full refraction, at least initially, to see if that gets rid of the accommodative component. If there's no com- com- accommodative component and you're sure it's congenital esotropia, it's not one of those other things that we've mentioned that you have to make sure they don't have, then in general, for congenital esotropia, there's recommendation is to operate if it's a large enough angle deviation. Um, and, you know, again, I don't, 
on oral boards, they probably won't ask you like full details of like what exact technique you do you do, you do to do surgery. I think most pediatric surgeons will probably do a medial rectus recession bilaterally for this, but in theory, you could do you know um, a, a medial rectus recession and lateral rectus resection on one eye if, if you if if you really want to. But they probably won't go into full details on like which of those surgical techniques that you'd use, but you need to know the general principles of how to repair that. I believe BCSC prefers medial rectus recession in this section. Which B- BCSC re- prefers that, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I honestly was not sure if they would expect me to know that, but I I couldn't cram that information in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that, like, you, you ask, like, 100 different surgeons about, like, your, like a 50-year-old RD or something. Not to turn this episode into a rotten episode, but, you know, the, 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 like, like, like 70 of them probably would say, like, vitrectomy, and then, like, 430 of them might say bump buckle. It's, like, depends on how old the surgeon is and stuff. So, yeah, that that's, like, very... Don't, don't worry too much about that level of surgical detail, I don't think. So if you like what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at eyes4ears, the number four, and you can, uh, if you want to support the podcast, a rating review on iTunes, wherever you found us, is really helpful. Thanks, and we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.